Media Masters with Paul Blanchard. Welcome to Media Masters, a series of one-to-one interviews with people at the top of the media game. Today I'm joined by Alan Murray, Chief Content Officer at Time Inc. and editor of Fortune magazine. Starting out at the Wall Street Journal, Alan rose through the ranks, serving as economics reporter, Washington bureau chief and eventually becoming executive editor of the Journal Online. He joined Fortune as managing editor in 2014 and has since taken a leading role in building out its website, digital and social media strategies. Earlier this year, he was also named Chief Content Officer at Time Inc., where he's responsible for editorial across the whole group and has recently focused on creating new forms of advertising. Alan, thank you for joining me. Great to be here. Thank you. Time Inc. has recently appointed you Chief Content Officer in the summer. Tell us about your new role and will that have an increased focus on digital? And uh, starting with what does that mean? Exactly. I'm, I'm only two and a half months in and I'm trying to figure it out myself. It's the job that once upon a time was called editor-in-chief, but I think it's become so much more complicated because we operate on so many different platforms uh, that it's a challenge. I think number one on my list is you've got 24 great magazine brands in this company. I mean, really iconic magazine brands. Uh, Many of them I read. Yeah, Time, Fortune, Money, People, uh, Food and Wine, Travel and Leisure, Cooking Light, Southern Living. Now I'm afraid I'm going to leave somebody out and they're going to be upset. Uh, (laughs) But these great magazine brands that that are making the transformation in digital, but they've kind of done it one-on-one. And the opportunity is for us to sort of combine forces and see how we can attack digital markets as a group. And let me give you just one example. There are many, but food is a great one. Give us all the examples. I'll give you as many examples as you have time for. But but food is a great one. We have nine or maybe ten, depending on how you count it, different brands that do food. Uh, we have Cooking Light. Southern Living Food is very important. Real Simple Food is very important. Food and Wine, obviously. Uh but they, they each have gone out to the digital markets on their own as individual brands. None of them have as much as – I'd say the biggest is maybe 9 million uniques. Uh, but together, they're 40 million uniques. And so figuring out – they're a powerhouse. I mean, And so figuring out how we work together to really show the full breadth and reach and power of that collection of, of food brands is the kind of thing that I'm working on. Same thing as – true in health, same thing is true in style, really across the areas that we care about, better serving our digital audiences uh, who are passionate about the brands is the top of my list. And how do you mix the, the traditional approach, given that many of them are print titles and therefore you've got that legacy and that, you know, that can in itself can be a huge boon, a cohort of existing readers to the brand and leverage that for digital to see the new opportunities and reach new audiences and new readers? Oh, it's very hard because the media, as you know, are very different. When you're reading on your smartphone, you know, and you might have like five minutes while you're waiting for somebody at a bus stop or at a restaurant or, you know, trying to grab some tidbits of information at the beginning of of the day that's very different than the magazine experience when you're probably in a comfortable chair and have 20 minutes or 30 minutes to go through your uh, uh, magazine and so teaching journalists and and creating content that works in the era of mobile phones is a challenge as well. It's got to be shorter. It's got to be faster. It's got to be much more frequent. It has to be more visual because visual images are what really arrest people. It has to be social. Uh, You know, journalists of my generation tended to think of themselves as artists. They would go out and create a great story and throw it over the transom, and it was somebody else's job to make sure it got to the people who were going to read it. Whereas today, we're all 
intimately involved in cultivating our audience through social networks and figuring out who the audience is and how you build it and how you react to it and how you play back on it. So it's it's a very different set of skills and making the transition from one to the other is a pretty significant cultural challenge. And that's, that's what we're working our way through right now. But we've made a lot of progress. Uh, look, I said we have 24 magazines. A lot of people don't uh, realize this, but uh, I, I did uh, a count when I started this job. On average, we produce about 1,300 pieces of content, stories or video, every day. Every day? Every day. Wow. So the magazine content is a pretty small portion of that overall. Uh, so we've become, uh, we've become a real, really strong digital operation. And I think now the opportunity is to figure out how we work together to reach even larger audiences. I'll give you a great example. Fortune, Time, and People all had uh, newsrooms that were working together on election night and the day after the election to cover this extraordinary event in American life. Time and Fortune both had the largest audiences they had ever had by far. I think we had something like Four million people on Tuesday who who came to Time and Fortune, closer to 10 million people on Wednesday. Plus, we had a live video uh, that reached 14 million people. So we're showing that if we if if we combine our efforts, we can really magnify the power of 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 what we're doing. It's exciting. It's exhilarating. And that must be, you must feel quite a sense of responsibility given those numbers. I mean, on the digital side, does the, does the metrics help or does it sometimes get in the way? Because you can kind of measure almost absolutely everything about the way that the person got there, what they read, the dwell time, how they left. It, does that sometimes get in the way of, you know, just producing good content? Or is it actually hugely helpful? Because we've, we've had uh, the editor of BuzzFeed in recently and he was saying that it's it's very helpful because you can, you can run an article with seven different headlines and within an hour you know which one's going to generate the most clicks and then you just go with that one. Oh, I think the metrics are very helpful. Look, I don't see uh, I, I don't think the media is that different. I mean, there's some things about media that are unique but by and large, I don't think media is that different than any other business and knowing your customer, who they are, what they're reading, what they aren't reading is very valuable information for us and and what BuzzFeed does, which is the real-time learning from that data is is a new skill for us, but one that we're getting better at and that we're spending a lot of time on developing. So what, what is top of your to-do list then? You're new in post, you kind of walk through the door on day one. What's front of mind? What, what are you wanting to achieve? Well, well, number one is just maintaining these great brands. I mean, they really don't are... Don't mess up kind of... Yeah, don't, yeah. don't screw it yeah, up, right? Do, no, do yeah. no harm. Yeah. Uh, uh, they really are... I, I knew this about Fortune because I was deeply involved and I... I, having spent most of my career at the Wall Street Journal, I thought, oh, the Wall Street Journal is the top of the heap when it comes to business news. But what I discovered is the emotional connection that Fortune has with the people who run the global companies is actually much greater than the Wall Street Journal. It's a great Journal. read. I'm a long-time reader. Yeah, and it's partly that, and it's partly because of the visual, you know, the cover people have. If, you're, if you put a CEO on the cover of Fortune magazine, there's a good chance it'll be hanging in their home, right? Truth is, if you're on the front page of the Wall Street Journal, odds are you you burn that issue of the Wall Street <laughs> Journal and hope it doesn't happen again. You know, so we both, I mean, we cover, we're tough on business, we cover business, but we celebrate business and, and we do it visually and that just creates a strong, I'll give you one example. One of the first magazines I 
did for Fortune when I got here was the Most Powerful Women issue. And it was the year that Ginny Rometty, the CEO of, of IBM, topped the list. I remember. I was, I was later told she had that cover and story framed and gave it to her mother for her birthday. So that's a kind of emotional connection. What I've only realized when I, when I uh, got to this chief content officer job is – it's the same thing with Sports Illustrated and athletes or time and politicians or food and wine and great chefs or travel and leisure and great resorts. I mean, we have these or Southern living and anybody I don't I don't know if you've spent much time in the southern U.S., but the iconic value of that brand in that area. So so these brands just have an emotional connection with people that is is beyond compare. And my belief is. One, there has to be value in that. If we mm-hmm. can't make a business out of that, we ought to all be taken outside and shot. Uh, <laughs> and two, my first job is to make sure that I uh, protect that, defend that, build on that. So that's number one. But, but, but it's the innovator's dilemma, though, isn't it, though? Because you, whilst you also want to protect the iconic heritage of those brands, if you're going to do something with them and take them in any direction, it might be a step in the wrong direction. Yeah, but – well, that, that's true. But but I don't think there's a conflict. Look, if, 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 if these are going to be great brands, then they have to be great brands digitally. So to me, to say, oh, to protect the brand, we can't go out and do the things you have to do to win in the digital world is crazy. It's nuts. It's a, you, you won't be a great brand for long if you, if you play that game. So, and, and a lot of our titles have really done a good job moving into digital. But what they hadn't done, and this was the first thing that hit me when I took this job, they hadn't worked together. You know, it's just not the way the company was built. They were all silos, 24 little silos going on uh, their own merry way. So at the top of my list then is figuring out, okay, how do we take these silos, which may make sense on a magazine rack, and get them to work together differently so that we're we're giving our content to the uh, digital audience the way they want it? Uh, and so, but, but also sharing best practice between them because you well, don't want someone on, you know, on, on time actually being really good that could share that knowledge with the other, the other silos. It, it didn't happen. It just wasn't the way this place was built and it wasn't in the DNA of this place. So, so working very hard to, to tear down those silos, what we're going to do is create a series of digital desks where people from different brands will work together to dominate a category, food entertainment, uh, tech, travel. Uh, so, And those are starting to get up and running right now. Some of it is just better coordination. Some of it is better sharing. We discovered a couple of instances. For instance, uh, when Adele was, I think it was on a Saturday that she said at one of her concerts that she had been asked to perform at the Super Bowl and she wasn't going to do it because she didn't think it was an appropriate audience. Uh, for her. Well, that's in the U.S., that's big news, right? That was a very big deal. Uh, Over the course of the next 12 hours, we had five different titles write and publish essentially the same story. uh, But with their own unique take. They didn't even, in this case, it, it appeared that they didn't know that the other titles were doing it. So there's nothing wrong with having five titles publish a story with their unique take. I mean, if Entertainment Week comes out it one way and People comes out it another way and Fortune comes out it through the money, fine. But that's not what was happening here. Straight news story written by five different reporters for five different titles. So what, what the new structure will let us do is, is say, 
okay, wait, first of all, we're going to get that first basic news story out and we're going to get it out before anyone else. And all the titles are going to use it to make sure we win in social and win in search. And then we can have other titles do unique takes on it. So we're not just duplicating the effort and and undercutting each other in the process. That's one example. I mean, uh, there are lots of them. Uh, uh, it must be a quite difficult challenge kind of managerially because you've you've got to preserve what's unique about each brand because you don't want to dilute right. it into one kind of amorphous right. mess. But on the other hand, there are commonalities that can be shared across all of the brands. And That's if right. you get that bit right, you'll succeed as a business and editorially. Uh, you, you you should come here and work. I sounds mean, like you, a job interview, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> you understand the problem, the challenge exactly. We want to protect the great brands, but we have to be smarter about the way we go after digital markets. And, and I think that's what these desks are going to allow us to do because people still retain their brand affiliation. You're a food reporter for Cooking Light or you're a food reporter for – for Southern Living, but they'll coordinate. They'll be, you know, in the in a in the same Slack room talking to each other, saying, "Hey, I'm I'm doing this story, but uh, but I'm not going to be able to do that. Can someone else get that?" There'll be a lot more sharing of content, a lot more cross promoting of content. So when we have a really great video or a really important story, we can blast it out across all, you know all twenty four sites if we need to. And I think that's going to uh, let us cross that difficult chasm that you very adeptly described. Do you see this more in your own mind as an organizational challenge rather than an editorial challenge? Yeah, well, it's both, right? Uh, I mean, the editorial challenge is to make sure we do great content. But yes, it's the organizational challenge. The way I look, I mean, this is the way I look at any job I've taken over the course of my life, which is where can I add value? We have a lot of great editors at this place. You know, I, I think I'm pretty good, but if I disappeared from the scene, there'd still be enough good editors at Time Inc. to do great video, great stories, et cetera. So where I see an opportunity to add real value to the organization is in that organizational challenge. How do we, how do we get out of our own way? How, look, it, what's happening, and, and you alluded to this earlier, what's happening into the, in the media world is you have a bunch of legacy brands like ours that are desperately trying to be smart about digital and you have a bunch of digital brands or digital operations that are desperately trying to build brands. And the question is, who, who's going to get there first? I think it's hard to build a brand. turns out it's actually pretty hard to kill one, too. I mean, you can do it, but it takes some time. So you can make some mistakes. You have the leeway to make some mistakes with these great brands and eventually get to the right solution. Uh, but it's hard, hard, hard for a BuzzFeed to build itself, I'm just using them as an example, I don't mean to pick on them, to build themselves into a brand that people cherish the way they cherish time or fortune or people. So I think we have the edge if we can just get out of our way and be smart about doing the things that you have to do to succeed in in digital. And, And that's where I believe I can make a contribution to the organization first. And do you think the future is entirely digital? Because you look at someone like Alan Rusbridger who says, you know, 10 years from now, The Guardian won't even exist in print. Or you look at, we, we had Jim Impoco recently from the, the Newsweek on the uh, the podcast recently, and he says that they've gone back into print, but he sees the, the newsstand version of their magazine purely as a kind of paper-based advert for their website. That, uh, you know, if you picture one of your readers, are they staring at a screen or are they physically holding a piece of paper, a printed I material? think it's going to be both for a long time. Look, in the long term, there will, we will come to a point where society will say, boy, this cutting down trees and grinding it into pulp to make paper so that we can put 
print on it so that we can read it is a little archaic. I mean, we might do it for museums and art galleries, but to do it as a way of transferring information is pretty Or archaic. just for leisure. We could cut down trees purely for leisure. Just because <laughs> yeah. we like to cut down trees, yeah. So that day will come, particularly because if it's form factor you like, the digital technology is going to get to the point where you could reproduce the exact form of a magazine but do it digitally, you know, with flexible screens and all of that. So, yeah, in the long run, it'll go away. I don't think it's going to happen soon. And, and look, I, I can tell you – I don't know if I'm typical of anything, but I can tell you my habit, which is I spend the week totally tied to my smartphone. And all the – the only reading I do and all the reading I do is on that smartphone. I get up at 4.30 in the morning and I'm I'm – going through websites and looking for information. And all day long, I'm going back and, and getting pieces of information. When the weekend comes, I take all the magazines home. Uh, I get the Saturday Wall Street Journal. I get the Sunday New York Times. And on the weekends, I love to sit in the yard if the weather's nice or sit in the house and read print. It's just a different experience. It's more leisurely. I'm looking for longer form stories. I can take a little more time with it. There's more serendipity involved. I can, you know, take in the visual beauty of those things. So I like both. Uh, I think there are a fair number of people who like both. I think it's going to take some time to beat those habits there's, a, there's also a kind of sandbox experience when you're on a website where you can kind of you're almost overwhelmed with the, the the choice of which avenue you can take whereas you know i read the sunday times for example when i'm back home in england and i quite like the fact that it's a linear experience i start on page one and then the, an editor or someone has decided what's going to be on page two and i let them make that decision on my behalf a- and when you get to the end you have a sense of accomplishment yes exactly. i read yeah. the paper yeah. you, you can't say i read the internet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just not possible. You're not going to get there. So, yeah, I think all of that is is pretty uh, deeply rooted. But you look at the demographics, you can see it's less deeply rooted for people who are 30 than it is for people who are 40. And it's even less deeply rooted for people who are 20 than it is people who are 30. So I think over time, we'll see it diminish. But look, we, we love our magazines, and we intend to keep them going for a long, long time. And th- this, this question will sound lame, and it's, it's almost semi-deliberately vague, but what's the future? You know, where will, where will all these brands be five or 10 years from now? Yeah, so that's the really difficult question, isn't it? Especially uh, if we play this podcast five years from now, because you'll probably have to be bang on the money with half of it and wrong on the other half. I, I think you can talk about historically why media was supported by advertising. And certainly in the 20th century, it was a happy convergence. In the 21st century, it's a less happy convergence. And I think, you know, it it may not go away entirely, but I think eventually it's not going to be, it can't, it can't survive as an advertising-supported business simply because advertisers have too many other ways to get to the people they want to get to. Most of them, I have nothing against advertisers. I love advertisers. I like more advertising. But most advertisers don't really care about the content. <laughs> They're just trying to reach the person. But and it's the content that creates the person reading the magazine that gets their advert in front of them. Historically, yes. But increasingly, that's not the, that's not the case. They can reach the they can re, they can find other ways to – you know, what I, the way I think about it, and, and this will be a sign of my age, and I apologize for that, but watching – I used to watch – uh, leave it to Beaver, although I think it was in reruns. I don't know that I was – I'm not sure I'm that old, but I used to watch Leave it to Beaver. And Ward Cleaver, who was the Beaver's father, you would always see him sitting at the breakfast table reading the newspaper. 
In fact, if you watched a lot, you would begin to wonder, does this guy have a job or does he just spend the whole day sitting at the kitchen table reading the newspaper? And what you realized was if you wanted to get information to the Cleaver family, there was only one way to do it. It was through that newspaper. So it was really an information bottleneck. The day that that paper was removed and a computer or a smartphone replaced it, well, then there are thousands of ways to get to Ward Cleaver. Thousands of and, – and they're only limited by your imagination and you have people like Google and Facebook who are trying to monetize those channels and, and, and it's just taken away that sort of uh, attention monopoly that the media used to have. So, so I think we have to get to other ways of monetizing content but it's, it, people are so used to getting media for free or near free. I mean, people pay a lot of money for Time Magazine and People Magazine but still – they're kind of accustomed to, you know, on their smartphone being able to get whatever they want to know at, at no charge. So it'll but, take some time to figure out how to do that. And it may not just be paywalls. There, there are other, uh, you know, working to develop native advertising that's integral to the brand, I think, is, is promising getting more involved in direct commerce. There are a lot of different routes, and we're exploring all of them. But over time, those non-advertising forms of monetization will likely grow and advertising shrink. And your competition now is is increased massively because, you know, in the old days, if you ran, say, the Times newspaper, you, your competition was, say, the Guardian or the Telegraph newspaper. It was another newspaper, whereas you've one pair of eyes and one smartphone. So your competition is it's Netflix. It's all kinds of anything else that could be on oh, that screen. Oh, it's not just Netflix. It's the, you know... It's Candy the, Crush or whatever. Yeah, or just Birds. anybody yeah. sitting at, you know, who sees somebody trip at the park and decides to film it on their smartphone. I mean, we're all journalists now, right? It's just there's an immense amount, too much information out there. But to me, that uh, reinforces the need for great media brands because the the media consumer needs to understand. You know, you, you look at this election, for instance, and all the fake stories, literally fake stories. I mean, there was one on a website that was made to look like an ABC News website that said a – that quoted a Trump – protester saying he was paid by Hillary Clinton to come and disrupt this. And it was totally made up, totally fake. And yet people don't have a good way of knowing that. So I think brands become the core of information trust that you're going to need in this world. And and that's, by the way, that's what Time Inc. brands fundamentally are all about. So if trust you in take, your editorial integrity, correct, frankly. If correct. You distill it into correct. a phrase. Our, our best-selling magazine is people. Okay, people exist in an ecosystem with you, – you just walk into any grocery store and you'll see all its competition. I, I, but, I always read it when I'm in the airport and I do travel around the world a lot, so I, I am a regular reader. It's a, it's, you know, it's great leisure time. Well, that's right, but it's competing against the National uh, National Enquirer or the – I don't want to mention some of the competition <laughs> because I'm about to diss them. Yeah. But virtually all of its competition has a accuracy level somewhere below Very well 70%. Put. Percent. Very well put. <laughs> right? well, well, you, you wouldn't buy it. the only one. Where you can believe what's, where what's you can on believe the page. Yes. It's, it's no, I think not, that's fair. You know, people does not do you know alien baby discovered in the woods, right? And it doesn't do made-up gossip about uh, celebrities. It, it's the real story. And, and that's sometimes tough because if you're standing there at the checkout line and you say, well – 
wow, that doesn't look quite as exciting and jazzy as those other magazines. But real life do. is slightly less exciting. A than little fiction. less exciting, <laughs> yeah. but with people and read our readers know that we've done lots of research to show this. They know that when they read it in people, they can believe it, and that's true of all of the Time Inc. brands. That is the fundamental point of value about our brands. And in a crowded, noisy, crazy internet world, the value of that trust becomes even bigger than ever. And without being too pious about it, it is quite a, a burdensome responsibility is that because you, you, you spend decades building that editorial trust up and it could be lost very easily unless you have very you know strong systems in place. 20 years from now you could hire a journalist, it happened in the New York Times recently of course with Jason Blair, where uh, you know you get a journalist who has no ethics and they can destroy your brand very easily. That keeps That's what keeps me up at night. I mean when you're talking about 1300 pieces of content going out the door every single day I'd like to say I read or watched every single one of them, but that's just not humanly possible. And so, so you yeah. have to trust in, in the, the people that work for you, yeah, the members you, of your team. And it's, and it's in the culture. It's in the culture. It's making sure people understand that's what these brands stand for, and that can never be violated. We have a fundamental bond with our readers and our viewers uh, that cannot be violated. You've got an incredibly strong editorial track record in your own right. Some editors that go on to manage other editors sometimes struggle with that. You've obviously done very well at it. I mean, you've got a slightly dual role now where you edit Fortune magazine in your own right, but then you also have a team of editors underneath. How do you balance both responsibilities? I do it by having very, very skilled deputies at Fortune. Uh, I mean, this is not a sustainable situation, I think. Uh, uh, I have a clear sense of of what I think Fortune should be doing and where it should be going. Uh, but the amount of time on a day-to-day basis that I can spend with Fortune these days is, is has declined from where it was three or four months ago. And at some point, I'll have to deal with that. And I'm speaking generically here, but sometimes editors are you know, semi-unmanageable. Sometimes the maverick nature <laughs> of, of what they... It's like herding cats, someone once said. Ma- and magazine editors are, have historically been worse than most. They I have. Think. But also, they, they also make bad managers sometimes. You know, they're really good within their own domain, but when they have to manage other editors, that can be a struggle. So what's the, what's the secret of your success so far? I mean, it's a really good question. I totally agree with your point. I think uh, journalists by nature not are more often than not bad managers. <laughs> I like collective efforts by groups of people. I have ever since I, I, I was uh, very, very young. I like it, – it, it comes part from empathy. It comes partly from being able to enjoy the triumphs of others. And it also comes from just recognizing that you can't do anything truly significant in life with some very rare exceptions by yourself. At least that was my conclusion and that the only way that I was going to be able to do anything significant is if I could motivate groups of people to work together to get it done. So that's always been part of my life. What's a typical week for you? I'm very interested in how you do this job. I know you mentioned that you get up at 4.30 a.m., which is great. And you're the only person who gets up at the same time I do. I'm also Good. incredibly motivated. Well, we should call and I talk. like that. Exactly. Yeah, give each yeah. other. The reason I get up at 4.30, I, 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 live, uh, I, I live in the suburbs. The reason I get up at 4.30 in the morning is because one of the uh, most fun things I do in life is write a daily email newsletter. I really don't do the whole newsletter. I just do a sort of a 300-word essay at the top that talks about the most – what I think is the most significant business I read story it. or point. That's good. I keep reading it. That will make it easier for me to get up at 4.30. Um, uh, so I get up to 
do that. I have to get that written before I leave home. And because of the way uh, I drive to work, uh, just because the public transportation means taking a train and then taking a subway and it's just too long and complicated. So, and, and driving is in New York City is only tolerable if I leave at six o'clock in the morning. So I get up, I do my newsletter, I get my car, I, you know, get to the office before seven, go to the gym and then uh, come in and start working on whatever is in front of me for that day. And what is in front of you? Because, you know, I run a sm- much smaller business than you, but half of my days reacting to stuff that wasn't foreseeable or ought to have been foreseeable, but due to my own shortcomings hasn't been. We have to deal with it. And then half of it is what I would call proactive stuff where you're on the front foot. And sometimes I'll, and, I'll finish a day where I think all the things I set out to achieve, I haven't. I've dealt with lots of stuff, but I haven't. And, and I assume if you, if, if you finish a day and you've only done the reactive stuff, you feel like you've failed. Because well, it's the proactive stuff at the end of the day that really makes a difference. Absolutely. And so I try and come in in the morning knowing, you know, what are the what are the two or three balls that I'm trying to push up the hill today and how do I make sure I get them further up the uh, further up the hill? Always have that list in the back of my head. And without going into the individual balls, because they're very kind of week by week, but what are the nature of those? Is it personnel related? Is it kind of, you know, hiring well, staffing and firing? Is, and... Staffing is very important. Uh, we already talked about the vast difference between producing magazines and producing minute by minute, hour by hour web content. Some of that, you can train the magazine people to do it, but some of it requires different people. And so making sure you have the right people in place to accomplish the right job is a challenge, particularly when you're trying to do both at the same time. So an awful lot of it is is uh, people-related. And this is a kind of a, a question that could apply to any manager, I suppose, but how do you keep your eyes and your ears peeled for emerging talent and the emerging trends? Because you, like you say, you've got these three balls that you're trying to run up the hill. Sometimes you've also got to t- take time to, to take stock and, and look outward to see what's happening. That's right. And How do you do, find time to do that? I, well, I, I, I do that on my smartphone <laughs> yeah. in, in, spare, in spare minutes. I mean, I, I, I have a, you know, you use different media for different things. I would say my Twitter feed is populated with people who are, some of them are, are in the political business and some of them are in the technology business, but by and large, they're in the media business. And so you, I, I keep up with what's, what is happening that's interesting on my Twitter feed. And I also keep up with a lot of people who are interesting on my Twitter feed. So I think that's a, a pretty important part of it. But we also have an enormous amount of talent just inside the the company. Now, I should be able to tell you exactly how many journalists work here, and I don't think I can, but I know it's over a 1,000. And so uh, making sure I know where the real digital skills are and making sure that I protect the people who have those skills and don't let them get crushed or pushed out by people with legacy skills, with magazine skills, I think is an important part of it as well. Do you sometimes envy slightly the journalists that are on the the, the floor of the newsroom because they're churning out copy? You know, so, uh, I suppose the question is ultimately is how ambitious were you at the start of your career? Because some people, and there's no shame in this, they want to be journalists and they want to keep writing. They don't want to kind of manage other journalists. They're not, I mean, I'm incredibly ambitious. Global domination for me is the ultimate yeah, aim. But, I, uh, well, well, this is, goes back to what I was saying earlier. I've always, managing people has always been a part of what I did. I edited my high school newspaper. In fact, I remember this is ridiculous, but uh, so I started my own newspaper when I was nine years old. I like walked up. What and was it called? The, 
Well, I I lived on initially I lived on Outlook Drive, and so I called it the Outlook Outlook. That's very good. Uh, thank you. That was I thought that for nine years old, pretty <laughs> clever. And I would collect information, and I'd write it down on a sheet. And I got my mother. I I, I couldn't type it at nine, but my mother would like type it up, and I'd mimeograph it and sell it for. So a she nipple. was your first editorial assistant, I suppose. I guess that's yeah. right, or my typographer, yeah, yeah. or, or uh, and then uh, we moved. We lived in Ohio or Pennsylvania. And we moved to Lookout Mountain, which was extremely convenient. Because and so the Outlook Outlook became the Lookout Outlook. Have you only ever lived in conveniently <laughs> named places? <laughs> you can't ruin the name. You can't ruin my brand value. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I, I continued to do that. What I was going to say was, I remember graduating from elementary school, and the the head of the elementary school said, "If we had had a school paper, you would have been the editor." Uh, I edited the high school paper. I edited the college paper. So I've. So while I love writing and I love the act of journalism, I've also always had a, a, a handle in managing people. So you always wanted to be the editor deep down? So. Yeah, I think so. It, is the job – I mean, clearly the nature of the job's changed, but was it as you envisaged back then when you were kind of 9, 10, 15 years old? Oh, no. No, but it's way more – it's more challenging, but it's way more fun because in those days it was strictly about written content – and it was strictly one way. You know, you write it, you deliver it, you're done. Whereas today it's about video, it's about audio, it's about podcasts, it's about uh, interaction, it's about having a continuing communication. I mean, that's part of what I love about the email newsletter is as soon as I send it out, I'll get a dozen responses. Uh, so those, I think we're at about 80,000 people. Those 80,000 people, I feel like I have an, uh, an intimate relationship with. I mean, you haven't emailed me back yet but i hope you I, that, will do that at some point in well, the future i've invited you on this podcast of course <laughs> he said defensively but, but actually that's one of the things i just mistakenly presumed that if i replied it would go to some generic box and that comes, it wouldn't be the, the real you me. and i love that's it that's, that's the reason why you know the one th- the one thing i should probably give up given this crazy set of responsibilities is that morning oh absolutely but that's what i love most that's what i love most it it sort of gets my it gets my mind going it's an opportunity to synthesize uh the day's news and it gives me a a more direct relationship with my readers than than i've had since i did the outlook outlook uh at nine years old. And presumably you wouldn't want to, to lose that direct relationship because no. it, it is it is something. I mean, one of the reasons I, I do subscribe to it is the, the media brand, strong though it is, isn't, isn't just faceless. I can actually, you know, work out what's on the editor's mind. No, and it's, and it's a great group of people. I mean, I, as you know, it's called the CEO Daily. It's focused on business. But there are a number of Fortune 100 CEOs who read it on a regular basis and respond to me when, when they see something that they agree with or disagree with. So it must open a lot of doors for you personally. Do you get a lot of lunch invites then? Be all these, for, you know, all these CEOs. I, I, we get people who they'll, they'll, they'll say, you know, this, the CEO is going to be in town and wants to come by and talk to you. And by the way, if you want to use it for your morning newsletter, that's fine. So can we just kind of just go through your career? Because we got to high school. Uh, I told you high school. I told you college. I actually went – I grew up in uh, uh, Chattanooga, Tennessee and went back, which has a great newspaper heritage. Uh, Adolf Ox was the editor of the Chattanooga Times back in the 19th century, left Chattanooga, went to New York, bought the New York Times and remodeled it in the uh, model of the Chattanooga paper. So in some sense, it's the parent paper of the New York Times. No one at the New York Times would ever say that, but those of us who worked at the Chattanooga Times feel that way. Um, So I I worked there for a few years. I went to graduate school in economics at the London School of Economics. 
worked for a magazine in Washington called the Congressional Quarterly for a couple of years. It was actually a weekly magazine. Talk about brands, by the way. It was started in sort of 1952 as a quarterly magazine, and in 1954 they went weekly, but they didn't want to change the name because they were afraid of losing the brand value. I write for a magazine <laughs> called PR Week in London occasionally, yeah, and, that, and that comes out monthly. I don't even think it is a magazine in my house. It's mainly a website, but it's the name, isn't people it? People get a little caught up in their, um, in their own making sometime. But, uh, so I did that for a few years. I, I went to Japan, uh, on a, interestingly, on a Henry Luce, the founder of Time, Henry Luce Fellowship, they, uh, a foundation he created to encourage people to work in Asia. I had one of those fellowships and spent a year working for the Nihon Keizai Shimbun in Tokyo. Wow, but that was quite an adventure, actually. That was great fun. Yeah, no, Love I, to- I, Was that in Tokyo? It was, it was in Tokyo, Tokyo, but I did a lot of traveling. Love I, Tokyo. They encouraged, the foundation uh, gave me a stipend and encouraged me to travel, so I, I spent a lot of time uh, out and around Japan. Came back to the Congressional Quarterly for a year or so, but then went to work for the Wall Street Journal in Washington. Um, became the Washington bureau chief. Did ran the Washington bureau for ten years, basically the Clinton years. Um, left because not to go into this too deeply, but I had kind of a nine eleven uh, crisis. I was going to move to New York with the Wall Street Journal. Their offices were a block from where we're sitting, right across the street from the World Trade Center. 9-11 happened. The offices were destroyed. They all had to move out to New Jersey. And furthermore, the story kind of moved back to Washington where I was. So mm. we called off the move. I said, I'm going to stay here. And then um, CNBC, the, the t- cable television station, was having their own 9-11 crisis. They had been kind of a service for day traders, and they suddenly realized the world was more complicated and they needed a Washington bureau and wanted an on-air Washington bureau chief. And at one point I said, well, tell me what you're looking for. Maybe I can find somebody. And they said, well, we've had three meetings. And at each meeting, somebody has said, we need an Alan Murray type. You, aren't you the ultimate ideal I can, Alan Murray type? I can do that. That's a job <laughs> negotiation that I'd like to have. So I left and I went to CNBC, uh, hosted a nightly show, ran their Washington bureau for three years. Uh, and then in 2005, went back to the Wall Street Journal. And it was shortly after that uh, around the time that Rupert Murdoch bought the paper uh, that I was asked to take over all the digital as well as conferences and some other pieces. And so that was really where I started to get deep into digital media and the cultural transformation that had to happen to move from print media to digital media. Uh, did that till uh, 2012, uh, left to the nonprofit world, ran the Pew Research Center uh, for a couple of years, and then was asked to come run Fortune in 2014. How did you feel at that moment then? Because, I mean, that's an incredibly iconic brand, is it not? You, we, presumably, like me, you were a long-time reader well before you were. Well, well, the Pew Research Center was a great organization. It's funded by a foundation that has has a $6 billion trust fund. And I sort of felt like I was in the safest job that I could ever have. And I said to my wife, we've sort of reached a point in life where we should be buying bonds, not penny stocks. But there's this penny stock over here that wants me to come be editor. And, and it sounds like a lot of fun. And I think I'll jump off the cliff and give it a try. I mean, so I kinda, it's the brands, you know, it's the power of the iconic brands of fortune, time, money, people uh, that ultimately attracted, attracted me. What advice would you give to someone starting out in journalism that wants to become the next Alan Murray? 
Oh, I, it's a much more complicated question than it was when I started. There's a greater premium on young people in this business than there has ever been because we believe young people have all these skills that we don't. But to take advantage of that, you actually have to have those skills. So, you know, social media, learn to code, learn to shoot your own video, learn all the new ways that we communicate with audiences and build audiences. And if you do that, you will be in high demand uh, in media today. Last question then, uh, in two parts. What's been the best day of your career so far and what's been the worst? In fact, start with the worst first because then we can end on a high note. The only time in my career when I actually said, I'm not sure I want to do this anymore, was uh, – you really want to hear this story? Yes, please. I'll get choked up. But it was uh, when I was running the Washington Bureau of the Wall Street Journal and Bill Clinton was president – and my daughter was in second grade, and she uh, uh, she was asked – her teacher – her mother worked in the Clinton White House. She had worked for a Republican on Capitol Hill but had gone to work in the Clinton White House. And the, and the second graders were asked to write stories on leaders they admired. Hero, I think it was a hero story or something. Most people wrote about their grandfather or Michael Jordan or uh, something like that. She wrote about Bill Clinton. This is the part where I'm going to get – because of – made me so mad at the time. They delivered their papers out loud in the class. She read her paper the day before the Monica Lewinsky story broke in the Washington Post. Uh, and she's in second grade. And, you know, that's and, – and that and the subsequent, you know, having to cover that and writing about the sordid stories about the blue dress. And it's like this is not why I came to Washington. I came to Washington because I care about – policy and the power of journalism to do good in the world, not to, not to chase this kind of story. So I, that was the only time in my career that I came close to, uh, to leaving. Well, and rightly so. Sounds, sounds a credibly challenging time. Um, best day? Yeah, I, let's end on a high note. Let's, <laughs> how do we switch from I, that to something a bit light? You know, I'm basically an optimistic person, and, and this is going to sound fundamentally silly, but almost every day feels like the best day just because – While the economics of our business are getting more and more challenging each day, the possibilities of our business – I mean I just learned this morning that we reached 14 million people with our live election night broadcast. That's stunning. 14 million people, the ability to sort of inspire, to tell stories, to interact with uh, people on that scale, which just increases every day, is very, very exciting. So I think the best is yet to come. Well, Alan, thank you ever so much for your time. It's been hugely enjoyable, and uh, I wish you the very best. Good. Thank you. Enjoyed it. Keep reading the newsletter. I most certainly will, and I'm going to be emailing you from now on as (laughs) well. A Big Things Media Production. Big Things!